optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now it is seen a perfect time. I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. As always, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, and you can find all of the links and resources from this episode, as well as every other episode, by going to fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. Spell it all out, or you can go to fourhourworkweek.com and just click on podcast. Feedback, if you have feedback, I would love your thoughts, anything at all, who you'd like to see on this show. Ping me on Twitter, at tferris, that's twitter.com forward slash T-F-E-R-R-I-S-S, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Tim Ferriss with two R's and two S's. Hello, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. For those of you new to the program, this is where I try to deconstruct excellence. I talk to people who are the best in the world at what they do and try to distill or extract the tools and tips and resources that you can use. And this episode is a very unusual one, a very fun one, a very useful one, I hope. The episode guest is Mark Goodman. Mark Goodman has been a resident futurist with the FBI and worked as a senior advisor to Interpol. Specifically, he's considered one of the world's leading authorities on global security. And in this episode, we'll go very deep into the digital underground. 
to expose the many ways that criminals, corporations, countries, organized crime, and the list goes on, are using emerging technologies against you, and some of the simple steps that you can take to decrease your vulnerability. Sure, 3D printers can produce AK-47s, bioterrorists can now download the recipe for Spanish flu, and cartels are using fleets of drones to ferry drugs across borders, all of which we'll touch on. But what else is waiting for you? What else is potentially targeting you right now? We'll dig into it all. And this is not from a paranoid nut job, and I think it's important to underscore this. This is from a very pragmatic real-life-oriented problem solver who has been hired by people like the FBI and Interpol. This is an informed insider. And he will describe the Wild West that is the internet. And in that Wild West, ignorance is no excuse for being defenseless. If you want to hear about current and future threats and simple defensive steps you can take, then this interview is for you. So without further ado, please meet Mark Goodman. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of the Tim Ferriss Show. I am so excited I can barely enunciate properly because I have Mark Goodman on the show, and I'll give a quick bio for Mark, and you'll very quickly realize why I'm excited to have him on. Uh, and this is pretty much directly from the bio, but he has he's spent a career in law enforcement in many different capacities. Uh, that includes work as a futurist for the FBI, who knew they had such a thing, uh, senior advisor to Interpol, and also on the street as a police officer. Uh, he's the founder of the Future Crimes Institute and the chair for policy, law, and ethics at Singularity University, where I've had some involvement uh, often at NASA Ames. And he's continued to investigate the often terrifying intersection of science or technology and crime and uncovering all sorts of different nascent threats and combating the darker sides of technology, which I think don't get as much sort of radio time, perhaps, as all of the promise uh, that that we that we hear about and the benefits of Moore's law, uh, he is also the author of the forthcoming Future Crimes, and the subtitle pretty much tells you a lot of what you need to know. Everything is connected, everyone is vulnerable, and what we can do about it. So, Mark, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Tim. It's an honor to be here with you. And I am thrilled to have you on because I wanted to grab you as quickly as I could because I think that you are going to be getting interviewed a lot uh, in the in the upcoming months uh, because many people are completely unaware of I think the the threats that uh, are not only in some cases ubiquitous now or or at least uh, upcoming but. Uh, soon will be right at our doorsteps. And uh, just as some background for people who are listening, because I've had a lot of public exposure since the unexpected success of the first book, I've really uh, come to realize this in a very personal way. And I've had people try to hack my sites, hack my phone, uh, impersonate different people in my life to get information from other people. It's been a real uh, fast education and cloak and dagger stuff. But I wanted to make sure I, I gave a very brief overview, but is there anything from your background or bio that I missed that I should share with folks? 
Uh, one thing you didn't mention is the fact that I'm a huge fan of Tim Ferriss. Um, I really love the four-hour work week, and it's quite an honor for me to be speaking with you today. I actually got one of the earliest editions of the book, and some of the entrepreneurship uh, suggestions that you covered uh, were ideas that I tried to implement in law enforcement and uh, with some difficulty, but I tried, and it was a pretty good fun. And I actually uh, took your advice on some of the things you did. I went on an information diet. Uh, not a real diet, but an information diet. And I also, uh, you know, have a love of foreign languages the way you do and actually enrolled in the Hartnackschule in Berlin, in Germany, uh, just the way you did. So thank you for your book. That's something else I wanted to mention right off the top. Oh, well, uh, that, of course, completely makes my week. And, uh, bitteschön. I, uh, I, so <laughs> I, uh, I hope you had fun. That was, uh, I had a great time at the Hartnackschule in Berlin. Um, and, you know, I think that, that language is uh, is a is a metaphor for so many different aspects of life, and the the becoming fluent in a language or becoming fluent in technology, uh, I think, can sound very intimidating to people, but it doesn't have to be super super complicated. But but before we dig in, I'm going to try something. A little different, and that is uh, to do. We're going to do the interview in German. We're going to do the interview in German, and I'll try to teach you Swahili. Right. Uh, no, uh, I thought that we might do just a little bit of calisthenics by doing some rapid fire questions first, just to loosen up the joints. Great, and, and then we can jump into uh, all of the the uh, the spy versus spy stuff, which I am absolutely obsessed with, which a lot of people might not realize. But before we do that, I have to get into the the really important stuff, such as uh, if Sean Connery came to your house for dinner, what would you cook him? What would I cook him? I don't know if he'd eat, but I'd make him some drinks. I'm sure he'd, he'd have a nice drink. What would you, what's what's the cocktail or the drink uh, of choice? I, I think for him, a martini. He'd be a martini kind of guy. Martini kind of guy. Uh do you have any favorite documentaries or uh, or films that come to mind? God, I love film. Uh, and I love uh, stupid 80s uh, comedy. So Ghostbusters uh, was great. And, you know, anything of that genre, anything with Bill Murray or Dan Aykroyd in it, I'm a fan. And, of course, I like all those 80s hacking movies like War Games and Sneakers and that type of stuff. So of the, of the, uh, the hacking genre or the crime slash spy genre, what movie, what movies that you like are closest to reality and furthest from reality? Ah, uh, that's interesting. Uh, it's very funny when you see how uh, Hollywood goes ahead and portrays hacking on the screen. Uh, you know, most hackers get a good laugh of what they ta- type at the C prompt. It's pretty funny. But uh, I think actually, I-, I have to give a hat tip to uh, Walter Parks, who did uh, the original War Games, because considering that it was in the early 80s, before most people were thinking about computers, I mean, modems were, you know, super slow and incredibly rare. And the fact that he was able to bring that hacker type out there and show that the Department of Defense was connected to the internet and you could change your grades. I mean, he did that 30 or so years ago. So that was really awesome. And uh, I think that's great. Some of the other hacker movies, uh, Sandra Bullock, uh, The Net, you know, it was a nice movie, not particularly realistic, but there were elements of truth in it. So there's just been a lot of silly hacker movies out there um, because, as I've been told, it's difficult to show, you know, cool hacker stuff on the screen in a way that people will understand. Yeah, I, I had a uh, computer scientist friend of mine also said that you can always, 
it's always amusing to watch uh, hackers typing in movies because they never use the space bar. <laughs> and uh, you, you can tell when people are BSing on a keyboard because they, they you, you never hear the distinctive sort of thwack of the thumb hitting the, the space bar. Sam, as uh, you will know, all the best hackers never use the space bar. That's right. Very common. <laughs> all, all the Dvorak typers out there, like, like Matt Mullenweg. Right. Uh, Let's see. The what is the book that you're most likely to give as a gift, or the book that you've given most as a gift to people? Uh, this sounds like BS, but it's actually been your book. Uh, I have to say, wow. I've given it to a ton of people. I have I run into people all the time, both in law enforcement, friends of mine, uh, folks that are struggling with their careers and trying to think about opportunities to see the world in a different way. And uh, no bullshit, I've actually given away about ten copies of your book. Wow. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, my publisher thanks you for that as well. Yes. Uh, but that was before I had my own book. In the future, of course, I'll <laughs> give him my book. But up until then, you, you were my favorite. Well, I'll take, I'll take a runner up when your book comes out. Are there any, uh, are there any fiction books that you particularly like? It doesn't have to be science fiction or any particular genre, but any, any fiction books that have been very influential in your life? You know, there were some, I love the old street, street crime drama. So, you know, having uh, grown up in New York City and kind of been very in tune with the New York City Police Department, uh, there was a book called One Police Plaza by a guy called William Connitz, which I thought was awesome and just really got uh, what policing was and what policing was all about. I thought that was pretty amazing. Very cool. No, I'd love to check that out. I know less about the police than I do the uh the other aspects of the of the military oddly enough you know so it's it's the the law enforcement that i have the most contact with i have the least the, the least knowledge of uh i understand is, is, <laughs> ironic uh let's see here i'm not going to ask too many more of these because i want to uh i want to jump into um of course the uh the your the subject areas that are your expertise but do you have any particular morning routines. What does the first hour of your day look like? Uh, I wake up, I take my dog out for a walk, and then I have a breakfast, which I really enjoy. Catch up on some news, emails, and then go and take on the day. What time do you typically wake up? It depends. I do a lot of traveling, so it depends on what time zone I'm in and how jet lagged I'm in. But um, more on the early side these days, I'd say. Got it. Uh, and that is that like a seven a.m. kind of thing or a six a.m. Uh, yesterday I was up at five. The day before I was up at five, and then uh, mostly I would say six thirty-seven something in that time frame. Got it. And uh, do you change your? How does your routine change on the weekends? How do you decompress if you if you do? Uh, I like to go for hikes. I like to go outside, like going to the movie theater, seeing films, hanging out with friends, all the kind of standard stuff. But, uh, you know, for the past year when I was writing the book, it mostly was my butt in chair typing. <laughs> right. Uh, when you think of the word successful, who's the first person who comes to mind? Hmm. Wow. Uh, there's so many different ways to define success. Uh, I mean, Martin Luther King joined, you know, is one of the first guys that pops into my head. Clinton was a pretty successful politician. There are lots of folks out there. Uh, and of course, you know, any of the entrepreneurs like Steve Jobs uh, and the like. Mm -hmm. Got it. Uh, so, so let's jump into uh, the, the, the subject matter at hand. And, uh, and, and we can tackle this from many different perspectives, but perhaps you could give 
maybe maybe a few facts or examples of things that might surprise people in the world of whether it's currently existing crime or things that you see right on the horizon coming down the pike. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, basically, my take on this is that folks are very focused on the cybercrime of today, every day in the news, whether it be the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, we're hearing that Target was hacked and Home Depot was hacked and JP Morgan was hacked. And what's interesting to me is that the media treats all of these as distinct incidents, like, oh, another company was hacked, you know, a bunch of celebrities had their naked photos, uh, you know, uh, tipped off by a hacker. That stuff is all treated as if it were an individual act. And what people don't see uh, from a 35,000 foot view is that there's a systemic issue going on, which is something I try to mention in future crimes. It's the fact that we have uh, thanks to Moore's Law, which you mentioned earlier, we're just moving at an exponential rate. And so we're plugging more and more things into the internet. And the fact is, as you well know, software is eating the world. So everything is becoming software. Everything is becoming a computer. A car is not a car anymore. It's no longer a mechanical device. It has 250 computer chips in it at a minimum. So a car is basically a Unix box that we ride in. An elevator is a computer that takes us from floor to floor. Um, as Cory Doctorow says, an airplane is a flying Solaris box with a bunch of industrial controllers. So people don't realize that. And the big takeaway from that is that never um, has there been a computer system that could not be hacked. In other words, every computer system is hackable. There are no unhackable machines. And that has some really profound consequences for us as a society and the world that we're building because we're about to add between 50 and 200 billion new devices to the internet, uh, uh, to the internet of things, depending on who you ask. Cisco will say 50 billion by the year 2020. Intel says 200 billion by the year 2020. The impact of that is that we're going to go from an internet that is theoretically or metaphorically the size of a golf ball today to one that is the size of the sun, right? That's, that's massive, a massive increase. Difference, yeah. We're just at the very, very earliest days of the internet. And so the, I guess you would say mistake that a lot of people make is they think we're technologically advanced today, uh, but they have no idea of the tsunami of technology that's coming our way tomorrow. And I think also to, to underscore that, that, that human beings intrinsically are very bad at thinking in exponential terms. Uh, they're just, they're, they're very bad at predicting for instance, I mean, the, the, the answers to a lot of these old riddles, such as you take one grain of rice and you double it for each square on the chessboard and how many, how many pieces of rice do you have? How many grains of rice do you have by the end? And, and it's, it's very hard for people to anticipate, uh, how quickly things can change. Uh, for instance, uh, I, I've listened to a number of your talks. You have a great TED talk and the fact that, and this may even be more accelerated now. I think your talk was in 2012, but the DNA sequencing is proceeding at five times Moore's law. Uh, and the impact that that has on uh, sort of privacy and, uh, the, the, uh, the weaponization of, of different types of code, right? And, um, there's, there's another term that you also use or phrase rather, and that's the, the technological arms race, sort of the, the white hat versus the black hat. And then you have a bunch of folks in between. So I'd, I'd be curious to hear, uh, sort of where things stand now compared to, uh, a, a, a horrible 
60-hour siege in Mumbai that you've talked about before, where, where terrorists you know, built their own op center in Pakistan to monitor the progress of these attacks in real time and where they'd be executing people with a handgun in one hand while looking at their cell phone in another, which gave them you know, a huge situational and tactical advantage over the police. Uh, but those were with relatively primitive devices, all things considered, because I think that was in 2006 or, or somewhere along those lines. Right. The, two, the 2008, uh, 2008 attack in Mumbai. Yeah. I apologize. And, uh, so we, and that, I, I remember doing research for the, for the four hour body at one point. I was chatting with uh, a scientist who shall remain unnamed, but he was talking about how negligent it was in his mind for a, a very well known tech titan to have released all of his, uh, genetic data or his, his, his DNA sequencing, uh, because people could, uh, create personalized biological weapons to attack him. And it's, it's sort of, I think, to the uninitiated seems like complete science fiction, like a fantasy. But, um, where are we with that type of thing? I mean, is that, is that already being used on people? Uh, yeah. So you're spot on, actually, uh, with everything that you just said. Uh, in fact, the cost of sequencing, you know, human genomes has dropped precipitously and is dropping at five times faster than Moore's law. So with Moore's law, silicon-based technology, ones and zeros, that is doubling every 18 to 24 months, depending on who you ask. And Ray Kurzweil has shown in the singularity is near and many times since that there is this persistent exponential pace of technology. Synthetic biology and genetics are out outpacing that by a factor of five. So uh, bio, biological advancements and computational biology were pretty much proceeding at Moore's Law's pace until 2008 when there were some massive breakthroughs in genetic sequencing, which made it go five times faster. So what is the result of that? Well, there'll be tremendous opportunities for each one of us to know our genome. For example, today, most people would certainly never consider going in for a full genetic you know, genome sequencing prohibitively expensive. When the U.S. government launched the Human Genome Project uh, back a decade or so ago, it, they allocated $3 billion to sequence the first person's genome. Uh, and they didn't get it done. They didn't complete it. Uh, Craig Ventner, a uh, world-famous biologist, came in and worked on the project, built upon the work done by the Human Genome Project, and he was able to sequence in full the first human being for a cost of $300 million about 10 years ago. And fast forward to today, you can actually get a full genetic sequencing for $1,000. And there are companies like 23andMe that will offer you partial genetic sequencing for just $99. Uh, without a doubt, within a few years, it'll be the price of a cup of coffee. Everybody will have their full genetic sequence. So that's great news for medicine, right? Uh, every cancer can be treated differently. Uh, you will know your proclivities for certain diseases. Uh, we'll be able to, you know, have really massive impacts on healthcare. But there's a flip side of that. When it costs $3 billion to, you know, sequence the human genome and pieces of equipment to do that were in the tens of millions of dollars. Only the government or the wealthiest universities could afford that. Now equipment that sold on eBay a year ago for $100,000 can be bought for 10000 or or 1000 today. That is putting the tools of genetics and synthetic biology in the hands of 
the common man. So there are actually high school clubs that are doing uh, genetic sequencing today, right? They have lots of groups. There's something called iGEM, which is a high school and college competition that focuses on this. So today's kids are very much at the cutting edge of science. And again, they'll do all different types of cool stuff. At Singularity University, we had a startup that was creating a glow-in-the-dark plant because they thought it would be cool. Let's do that. And you can do that. But the challenge with these things are is that not, not everybody playing with these tools, whether it be genetics, synthetic biology, robotics, artificial intelligence, is of a kind heart. And there are criminals and terrorists and bad guys that now for the first time have access to these tools. And I know you're chomping at the bit, so I'll shut up for a second <laughs> and then happy to give some examples of what bad guys are doing with bio. Uh Okay, we're going to come right back to that. I want to ask a, a very personal question, which is, so 23andMe, I've always been nervous about having my own name associated with genetic data. And so uh, I have thought to myself and talked with other people about, well, perhaps you should have a friend pay for your 23andMe who is of uh, a different gender, so that if that data is ever compromised, it's tossed out uh, or misattributed or using a pseudonym, let's say with an authorized account under a, a separate credit card, et cetera, shipped to an address that isn't associated with your name so that, that, that data cannot be used against you in some fashion. Is that, is that para, is that paranoia or is that preparedness? Is that, is that a practical thing in, in your mind or something else? I'm just curious. Well, well if it's paranoia, you and I are both paranoid because that's the exact advice I give to my friends that want to do the test. So I don't know whether or not this violates their terms and services, but the simple <laughs> fact of the matter is we have no idea how they're going to use that genetic information. And there are lots of sites out there. And some I mentioned in the book, one is called Patients Like Me. Patients Like Me was a medical site where people were meant to be sharing confidential medical information with each other and, you know, get help for particularly rare diseases. And they had something called the mood form where people were talking about psychotic breaks, suicidality and the like. And it turns out the folks that were running it were actually releasing all of that information to insurance companies. And it was mentioned very clearly in in their terms of service that they do so. So you think you may be doing something that's safe and secure and private, but in fact, often you're not. So I would always look at the terms of services. Again, I don't know what the terms of services are for 23andMe specifically, but I would say the following. If I wanted to get genetic testing, I definitely share your concern and would not be doing it under my own name because we simply don't know where this technology is going. We have a naivete about you know the future and what it might look like. I'm not sure if you ever saw the movie Gattaca. Uh, I, I've seen the previews. <laughs> So about as far as I've gone. Yeah. The short story is it's kind of a dystopian future where everybody is judged based upon their DNA. So let's say you want to be a scientist or you want to be an astronaut based upon your genetic profile, they'll say, no, you know what, Tim, you're not quite what we're looking for. And everybody's social strata is determined by their DNA and what that what people uh, presume that means. So I won't say that exactly we'll be living in the Gattaca future. But for example, if there are genetic markers for um, sexual orientation, for example, which some people suggest there are, there are definitely uh, genetic markers for predispositions to violence, could be for schizophrenia and other diseases. So the opportunity from a public policy law and ethics um, perspective to have your genetic material uh, leak or the information about you and get out into the public sphere 
I'm sure will happen. You know, we know today uh, that uh, presidential candidates are forced one way or the other to release their medical records to show that they're fit and ready for office. Uh, I guarantee that that will be happening with presidential genomes in the future. Uh, and in fact, I, I talked about this. I wrote an article with two friends of mine, Stephen Kotler, who you may know, sure. and Andrew Hessel, a synthetic biologist. And it was in the Atlantic Monthly and it was called Hacking the President's DNA and it was all about what those risks would look like and the uh, the a number of bio threats that could be launched if you had access to somebody's genetic material. So for most folks, I don't think they have to worry about biohacking today. But from a privacy perspective, I think I would uh, definitely take precautions. And the ones that you mentioned about using a prepaid credit card, for example, or having it shipped to a third party and all of that stuff, I think are good, logical, common sense steps to take. So what are some other, uh, yeah, and just for, for what it's worth, I, I, I want to do like a, an urban myth check here. Cause of course I, I get all excited about this stuff. And when I was doing, uh, research for the, the four hour chef and got, became fascinated by marksmanship and hunting, of course, that very quickly leads to prepper communities and there's the good, bad and the ugly there. Uh, and there are some very extreme edge cases. But uh, I was speaking with a very well credentialed scientist. And the example he gave was, you know, a, a personalized weapon doesn't have to be a synthetically engineered, super fancy sci fi like dart or pill or anything like that. It could be that you know, someone's predisposed to a, a disease and that you can accelerate the onset of, say, a neurodegenerative disease by blowing molybdenum into their face at a at a at a public event where they wouldn't even they they might not even register that that's what happened. But if you wanted to say take a long term short position on their stock and they're running right, a publicly traded right. company, that it doesn't have to be that type of crime doesn't need to be the implement the diagnostics and the determining of the target could be sophisticated, but the actual attack does not have to be. Um, something futuristic. Uh, I, I agree with that. I'll give you a perfect example. There's a medicine called warfarin, which is a blood thinner. And there's a certain uh, small percentage of people that have a genetic marker that makes them allergic to that. And it's deadly if taken. So that would be a perfect example. It's a common pharmaceutical that exists today. And it's not something that you can see by looking at somebody, whether or not they're allergic to warfarin. But if ingested, right now you have that additional piece of information and you know about it and it could be fatal. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, yeah. Oof. And I think, you know. So don't do that, kids. Yeah, don't, don't do that. Don't commit biohomicide. And, uh, you know, it's, it's also, uh, it brings up, uh, and, I, and I want you to, to give some examples, but a, a misconception I think that a lot of people have about criminals or particularly uh, terrorists specifically, and that is that they're, they're just uneducated. Uh, and I, maybe you can, can set, shed some light here, but it, it seems that there actually seems to be a disproportionately high percentage of very, very, very well educated people who then, uh, are recruited, uh, by, uh, militant groups as, you know, operatives or, or terrorists. It, 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 it it's, 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 uh, I think people underestimate the, perhaps the, the, the intellectual horsepower of, of, of some people who could perpetrate these types of, of, of crimes. Um, but I would love to hear certainly examples. Um, you, you mentioned you might have a couple of different examples, uh, sure. which I'd love to hear. 
Yeah, I mean, on the terrorist front, you're exactly right. People tend to underestimate them. You know, when we were first going into Iraq and Afghanistan, we talked about people with towels on their heads living in caves and what could they possibly do to defeat us. And as we saw, they were able to put up quite a hell of a fight. Uh, and, you know, Ayman al-Zawahiri, who was uh, Osama bin Laden's number two, was an MD. He was a trained physician, right? So there are any number of doctors uh, that are in these terrorist organizations. We've seen them recruiting specifically on terrorist chat boards. They're looking for people with scientific backgrounds, with technological uh, backgrounds. One terrorist uh, by the name of Irhabi 007, he took the 007 from James Bond, uh, and he was like basically the CIO for Al-Qaeda for a while, running their technology. Uh, in the wake of the Snowden disclosures, there's been a ton of chatter on terrorist chat boards uh, talking about the importance of encryption. So they follow the news very, very closely and often are paying attention to it. They show tremendous sophistication. And let's go back to Bio, for example. The uh, terrorist organization, Aum Shumrinkio, the folks that carried out the sure. 1995 Sarin terrorist gas. attack. Exactly. Sarin gas on the Tokyo subway. That occurred in 95. What most people didn't realize about Aum Shumrinkio is the fact that they had a bioweapons project. They spent a million dollars a year from for 10 years from 1985 to 1995 trying to develop a powerful bioweapon, and the science wasn't there yet for them to be able to do it. That's why they went with the chemical sarin gas attack. Today, things like that would be much more trivial given the wide availability of biotoxins and other type of infectious threats that are available online. The code is there. You can download it, basically build some of these things in your basement or garage and release them. Another area where we see terrorists uh, playing in really interesting ways are both robotics and social media and open source intelligence. And I'll just give a few crazy examples. So during the terror uh, attack at the Westgate Mall that occurred in Nairobi uh, about a year ago, we saw uh, the terrorists from Al-Shabaab, the militants, were incredibly sophisticated in how they were using social media and Twitter. They were live tweeting the entire event and they were actually mocking the Kenyan police force and military guards throughout the incident, putting out information, uh, adding to the confusion. And ISIS uh, or the Islamic State has been doing the same exact thing. You mentioned earlier also the 2008 Mumbai terrorist attack. In my humble opinion, that was perhaps one of the most sophisticated terrorist attacks we've seen to date from a technological perspective. Uh, Ten terrorists were able to keep a city, a metropolitan area of 20 million people completely shut down for 60 hours. So 10 guys, not just armed with standard weapons, AK-47s, RDX explosives, hand grenades, but these guys had night vision goggles. They had satellite phones, satellite imagery, encrypted Blackberries. They used Skype type uh, VoIP communications during the incident. Because they had all that technology, they had phenomenal situational awareness, situational awareness that beat the capacity of the Indian National Guard and the Mumbai police to respond. And they used it to great effect to actually kill more people. There's an example I talk about in the book of a man called K.R. Ramaporti, who was staying at the Taj Mahal Hotel in Mumbai. Um, you may have been there. It's one of the most beautiful hotels in the world. And 
when the terrorists took over the hotel, they started going room to room trying to find more hostages. And they came across Mr. Ramaporti, who was on the top floor in a suite at the Taj. And they broke into his room and they said to him, well, who are you and what are you doing here? And he said, oh, no, I'm nobody. Leave me alone. I'm just an innocent school teacher. Well, the terrorists were dumb, but to your point about not being that dumb, they looked at this guy and staying in a suite at the Taj Mahal, beautiful hotel, and they said, there's no way any Indian school teacher could afford this suite. They picked up his ID at his bedside, and then they phoned it in via a satellite phone to the terrorist war room that was set up across the border in Pakistan. There in the war room, the terrorists were monitoring uh, live. Uh, a, they had uh, IBN. Uh, CNN, BBC, Al Jazeera, and a bank of computers where they were doing real-time research. So you had the 10 uh, uh, operatives from Laksha e Toiba, uh, an Al-Qaeda affiliate based in Pakistan, that were carrying out the attack, uh, broken down into five teams of two terrorists. And then you had the terrorist war room. So when they phoned in the name of this guy to the terrorist war room, they simply Googled him. They came across his photograph. As it turns out, he was not a school teacher. He was the head of the one of the second largest banks uh, in India called ING. And they came across his photo. And then we know from the intercepted conversation, which we only discovered after the fact, that the terrorist war room said, hey, we found a picture of your guy. Is your hostage heavy set? Yes. Does he have glasses? Yes. Is he kind of bald? Yes. Okay, we found him. The terrorist then said to their op center, what shall we do? And then the order came down, kill him. So the Amazing. fact of the matter is, back in 2008, terrorists were using search engines like Google to determine who shall live and who shall die. And though it's a black swan event, and I know you talk about those, the fact of the matter is when you're sharing in Facebook, it's not just you know the media and marketing companies that you need to be concerned about. When you share openly, everybody has access to this. And even though it's a black swan, rare event that could be terrorists or organized criminals as well. And I should, I, I think you, you, uh, I think it's a terrifying example, particularly when you consider that 2008 was the Stone Ages compared to the, uh, the, um, the, the implications of big data and, and, uh, ubiquitous availability of tools today and the sophistication, certainly, of a lot of those tools. Uh, including reverse image search and things like that through Google or Tinai or others. The, the black swan events also, just because a black swan event is considered a black swan event to the victims doesn't mean it's a black swan event, uh, i.e. a, a, a low probability random event. It could be completely engineered as it was in this particular case through, uh, extensive preparations on the part of the, of the terrorists. So the, the, uh, I'd love to talk a little bit about uh, a a phrase I've heard you mention before, and that is public safety is too important to leave to the professionals. So there are, there are a number of ways I'd like to try to unpack that. The first is just as a uh, uh, to, to try to bring out my inner prepper. So <laughs> in in if if you live in San Francisco, uh, in a city like New York City or San Francisco, uh, or Chicago, <clears throat> what are the things that should be keeping you up at night that you should be thinking about mitigating as risks or black swan events? And, well, traffic, but it's not a black swan event. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, 
keeps me up at night. Uh, when I talked about that, I was speaking more broadly about kind of the cyber threat, but it's also true in physical space as well. I mean, the fact of the matter is uh, that the line between kind of order and society and chaos is actually quite thin in law enforcement. They talk about the thin blue line. And I was a patrol officer in Los Angeles during the LA riots. And what I realized is that the police are in charge as long as the public wants them to be in charge. Once the public decides that they are not in charge, you are no longer in charge. I, I think LA had 1.7 police officers for every 100,000 citizens at that point. And so if you make the citizens citizens really, really mad, (laughs) uh, as was the case during the Rodney King incident, then it's over and there's nothing you can do. So uh, in physical space, I mean, all the basic stuff that that you talked about, the prepper movement, but the Red Cross would give you the same type of advice or the California Office of Emergency Services, FEMA. There are any number of good checklists out there about having water and food and, you know, just be prepared to have an emergency plan. All of that is really good and useful. And uh, I also had, unfortunately, uh, the opportunity to be in New York City down at Seven World Trade on 9-11. So uh, that was another experience that I happened to have lived through. And, you know, it, that brought out the best of people in that particular since where you saw total and complete strangers uh, being as warm and helpful to one another as they could. Um, so it can really go both ways. Uh, when I talk about public safety being too important to leave to the professionals, what I would say is that uh, people often abdicate their concept of safety to the police or to the authorities and think that everything will be just fine. And mostly in our physical space in the developed world where we have rule of law. So, you know, think Australia, Western Europe, uh, you know, North America. That's a system that works quite well. If you look at what's going on, you know, with Al-Shabaab and others in, uh, you know, Africa, it's a different story. But uh, in cyberspace, it's a complete, uh, you know, every man for himself type scenario. What I find fascinating is, is that from the most part, law enforcement has abdicated any responsibility for cybercrime. Now, I know that some of my colleagues in law enforcement might you know, take issue with that. And certainly they're trying hard, but the volume of the threat and the nature of the technology makes law enforcement uh, nearly impossible as a solution for the cyber threat. You know, I talk about law enforcement uh, is a nation state type solution, right? A policeman in New York cannot make an arrest in Moscow and vice versa. And so law enforcement is a local solution to a global problem. So no matter how good the cops get, even though there are organizations like Interpol also that are trying to make a difference, they're just fundamentally mismatched. And that's what we need to deal with. You know, if somebody came into your house uh, and broke into it and stole something, you dial 911. If some kids spray painted your car or your house, you'd call the police, you'd file a report for vandalism. And yet we have the equivalent of these things going on every single day in our homes, in our computers, on our cell phones on our tablets. And if you dialed 911 to report a computer virus, <laughs> the cops would come for you as opposed to sending a car to investigate it. So uh, I think from that angle, 
we need to get average and everyday citizens involved in this. On the one hand, law enforcement has very limited resources. It doesn't work internationally. And not all agencies are particularly well schooled on the cyber threat. Whereas, and you know this living in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, there's tremendous talent in the private sector that uh, fully is versed in technology. There's a global community of people that could contribute significantly to this problem. And I think that it'd be a great opportunity to get them engaged. And the last thing I would mention, particularly since we are living so much of our lives online, you know, staring at screens on our, you know, uh, smartphones or on our computers every single day. There's a part of our life that is taking place in cyberspace, and yet we don't have a common defense force for cyberspace. So, you know, uh, for 100 years, we've had reserve army, we've had reserve and auxiliary police officers. We don't have any equivalent for that uh, in cyberspace. And so when the big cyber attack comes, we're going to have a paucity of resources and talent to respond. So one of the things I call for is the building of a National Cyber Reserve Corps. Take average, ordinary citizens, men and women women, young and old, it doesn't matter, put them through a background, get them cleared and part of the solution because we definitely need their help. So I, I definitely want to come back to that type of uh, distributed or crowdsourced workforce. Uh, and on a, on a related note, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the physical world, so meet space and yes. those types. By the way, on crowdsourcing, I'll give you some great examples when we cool. come back about criminals crowdsourcing. Okay, great. And, and we can talk about the counterforces to that also. So I remember going through a uh, Northern Emergency Response Team training course, uh, which was, which was organized by the San Francisco Police and Fire Department. So this was not a fringe group teaching this class. Right. And I remember, I'm paraphrasing here, but roughly they said, they, they polled the audience, said, okay, how many people live in San Francisco? How many fire engines do you think there are? And it was something like, <laughs> you know, 38 fire engines for right. at, at, a, at a minimum several hundred thousand people. And the point they made was if there is a, if there is a, in, in the event of a real event, a, let's just call it a seven point or higher Richter scale earthquake, you could go and very realistically could expect to go seven to 10 days without food or water. Uh, and, uh, the, you know, the, the, the fact that, um, the, the Lord of the flies type scenario while unlikely is not as unlikely as people might think. And I recall when I was writing a, a section of the four hour chef called the wild section, which was all about sort of foraging and hunting and, and, uh, preparing food without the use of a kitchen, I got, went down the, the prepper rat hole pretty quickly. Right. And, uh, I remember having, uh, some editorial feedback from the publisher, which was critical of how deep I went into this stuff. And just at that moment, when I was being told that I was, uh, it was too alarmist and too extreme, Hurricane Sandy hit New York City. Right. And, uh, it was just a perfect illustration of how ill prepared most people were, uh, for what is going to be, uh, a, an increasingly common occurrence with climate change, at least according to a, a lot of scientists who, who have looked at, you know, the modeling of say, uh, hundred year storms and how right. those might occur every decade or, or even more frequently. But let me, let me ask you, um, in, do you think having, you were mentioning, mentioning biochemical, 
uh, weapons or biological agents and how people, uh, it's, it's become increasingly easy in a way to, uh, to fabricate these or to, to engineer them. Do you, uh, do you think having iodine tablets and, uh, gas masks at home is, is overkill if you live in a metropolitan area? I guess it would, I would say it depends on your philosophy in life and how you choose to live your life. You were talking about, uh, you know, 30 or 40 fire engines for the city of San Francisco. There were nights when I was working with the LAPD on morning watch, midnight to eight. And for a precinct that had 400,000 people living in it, we had three police cars on the road. Oh so in that precinct, now we had other guys in other precincts that we could call, but that's, you know, three police cars, six guys and gals, you know, for 400,000 people. So yes, the thin blue line can be quite thin at times. And I'm always encouraging of people to be prepared to have a plan to be cognizant of the threats. Now, you can take that to an extreme. You can say, I have to have a bunker. I need to live underground. We need to be prepared for you know nuclear Armageddon. And that's not the way that I choose to live my life. But I think common sense tools, first aid kit, having iodine, perhaps, uh, opportunity uh, to have tablets to make sure that you have access to clean water um, that's decontaminated. Contaminated and things like that. I think that just is logical. I, I don't think there's anything over the top about that at all. Uh, with international travel, um, and, and uh, we're not going to get into um, necessarily kidnapping and all of that, but I want to, I want to, I want to use this as a. Trans- we can. I have a great kidnapping example. Well, all right. Well, if, if you're going to dangle that carrot in front of me, let's go there. So I want to, uh, I want to, no, I want to hear the kidnapping example. Let's, uh, let's okay. do it. So this is just something that occurred in Mexico City a couple of years ago when smartphones were first starting to come in. Uh, The cops in Mexico noticed a phenomenon that was really weird. So I'm sure this has happened to you. You get off an airplane in an other city and somebody's holding a piece of cardboard with your name on it and you walk up to them. Have you done that? Yes. Yeah. So um, guess what? Cardboard can be hacked. Uh, sometimes people lie and sometimes the person holding the sign is not the person that you expect them to be. So about three years ago, four years ago in Mexico City, when smartphones first came out, uh, organized crime groups and narcos were hanging out at the Mexico City airport. And with all the signs up, they said Mr. Smith from Dow Chemicals and Mrs. Jones from, you know, uh, whatever the company may be. The bad guys were sitting there and they were using their smartphones to Google the people whose name Names were on the signs and looking for those that they estimated to be of the greatest net worth. Once they figured out who that was, the um, criminals were going up to the chauffeurs and saying, you know, here's 100 pesos, get out of here and we'll kill you or we'll kill you. And they were taking the cardboard sign. The executive flying in from New York, San Francisco, London would then get off the plane, see the piece of cardboard with their name on it, walk up to the person who also took the limousine, was dressed like a limousine driver, got into a car and was kidnapped. Uh, as a result, and there are actually a few people that were killed. So my point is, is that most people are very trusting and they should be. That's the way you want to live life that, you know, you want to be happy and think about that stuff. But when everybody thinks like that, those who think differently, for example, criminals, terrorists and others, it's really easy to subvert the system and cardboard can be hacked. Yeah, it's uh, I hadn't heard that specific example, but that is uh, yet another reason for me to use, uh, pseudonyms when using car services, uh, right. which, which I do, um, I have done for the last couple of years just because I've had some weird experiences with travel. Uh, even though, uh, you know, this is where, this is where the internet really fucks me because <laughs> people think people can't run publishing 
numbers. They don't understand book economics. So they think I have like a hundred billion dollars and I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> just like, no, you got the wrong guy. Right. But, uh, the, the, uh, oh God. Yeah. The, the, the kidnapping is terrifying. I, I, I know, uh, I have known people in Argentina and in other countries who've been, mm-hmm. uh, kidnapped or, or, or Colombia, Brazil, very, yeah, very it's common. extremely common. I know many people who've had family members or friends kidnapped in South and Central America. The, um, and certainly not exclusive to those places at all. But the, the question I was going to ask you is a segue to, uh, virtual attacks. And, uh, one of the, uh, startups that uh, I'm, I'm close to is uh, used to be called Reputation Defender. It's now Reputation.com, and uh, one of the executives there told me that when he travels to China on business, he will use a brand new throwaway netbook because he does not want any of his data compromised on his uh, on his hardware. You know, if he brings a, a laptop with him, um, if someone is traveling. Uh, let's just, let's just say it's a business person. They're, they're traveling to any number of countries, but let's just assume it's China. What are the precautions that they might take, uh, to try to prevent any infiltration of their data or sensitive information? Yeah, that is an awesome, awesome question. And it's one that people don't think about, uh, nearly often enough, you know, whether it be an executive from Houston or New York City or those in Silicon Valley. Obviously, business will take them to, you know, the most populous nation on earth, the People's Republic of China. And there, the rules are very different in terms of what the so-called police can do and how they will treat you and your technology. So all I would say is if you're going over there for business, Play close attention. The fact of the matter is their screening of you begins when you fill out your visa application, right? It's nothing there is random. So why do you have to do a visa application? Because they want to know who you are and if you're interesting. And if you're Andy Grove from Intel traveling into China, they're going to pay attention to you. And I'll give you one simple example. Uh, and this was reported several years ago. Andy Grove, the former chairman of Intel, actually took a flight into Beijing. He gave a, a lecture before a thousand people and uh, presented from his laptop after his presentation was over uh, two very young uh, pretty Chinese women approached him and they were ever so subtly just moving their own bodies to get him to turn away from his own laptop he had a lovely conversation and when he turned around his laptop was gone now the big mistake in that particular case is not that he brought a laptop per se but as the chairman of Intel, he actually had the designs for one of the latest Pentium chips, oh. some extremely valuable intellectual property on the computer that disappeared along with the laptop. So my general rule of thumb is, you know, laptops, as you you know, netbooks, whatever they are, they're just a couple hundred bucks today. If you can afford a trip to China, you should be able to afford a laptop. You can bring a dummy phone with you. And just to give you an idea of some of the information that leaks, the minute you connect to a hotel in uh, potentially hostile territory, whether it be Iran, China, you know, whatever country you're traveling to, they have the ability to insert malware onto both your phone and your computer the minute your device connects to their network. So, you know, when you have to log into the hotel webpage to pay, that's when the handshake takes place and that's when your device gets infected. So that's step one. If you go ahead and leave your laptop in any hotel safe, 
routinely the hotel security gives access to the local police so they all know the combinations anybody can open up one of those saves incredibly easily so what i would recommend is if you bring technology carry it on you uh, if you want to hold on to it, I would limit the amount of information you put on it. I would certainly consider what we call a throwaway laptop or mobile phone, and I would make sure that those devices were encrypted. If you know you're going to call 10 people when you're over there, have those 10 phone numbers and don't walk out there with all of your contacts, with your business plans, with your sales figures. The thing that mostly the Chinese are interested in besides uh, intellectual property is they're very aggressive about being helpful to their uh, state-backed industry. So if you're over there as an American businessman or woman or regardless of what country you're from and you're negotiating a deal with the Chinese, they'll be very careful about monitoring your email, what you're doing, and any negotiations that you may be having with your counterparts from your own company in the United States, whether it be your general counsel, the head of sales. They're going to take that information and feed it to their Chinese equivalent uh, in order to do that. And in fact, there was a case that I mentioned in the book where an executive from Coca-Cola got fished with the spear phishing email and they were in a multi-billion dollar deal with a Chinese beverage a state-sponsored Chinese beverage company and they were underbid and lost out. So one phishing email to the right executive, crafted in the right way, infected the computer and then the deal was done and billions of dollars were lost. Wow. So the phishing email was something like Whatever it might be, uh, you, yeah, your, your account is overdrawn for the Bank yeah. of America. Click here to confirm exactly. your blah, blah, blah. And if I could just give one general tip, something to keep in mind, and you know, I don't know everybody that's going to listen to your podcast, but I'm going to postulate that most of your listeners actually do not know a prince in Nigeria. If you get an email from a prince in Nigeria, <laughs> do not click on it. He's not your friend. He doesn't know you. <laughs> That's, yeah, very good advice. Very, very good advice. It, yeah, the, the opportunity cost of missing the real email from the prince in Nigeria, uh, <laughs> pr- pretty pretty low when you look at the pro- yeah. probabilities. Uh, but you hit on something major right there, which is actually that is one of the major causes of infections to people's computers is that they're clicking on the wrong link. And in the old days, you used to be able to tell a phishing email because they use bad, ling- bad English, bad grammar. Now they're perfectly well-crafted and a spear phishing email targeting, targeting a specific individual or executive is even more so. So you have to be really careful. Basically, my general rule of thumb is don't click on links. If people send me a a link, I'll call them and say, hey, did you send this to me? And they think I'm crazy, but I don't click on links. Yeah, well, ditto for attachments, which can be uh, executable files. Uh, The... uh Okay, so I have a. I'm gonna. I'm gonna ask about an edge case because I, I love asking these sort of absurd or extreme questions. But if if someone has uh, an unlimited, a nearly unlimited or unlimited budget, let's just say it's a hedge fund manager who's worth a billion dollars plus, what, and you are their personal sort of uh, security consultant, and um, you can interpret that any way you'd like. Uh, uh, Security slash sort of uh, Armageddon proofing consultant. What are yeah. what are some of the things you would have them do? I would have them hire a guy who didn't discuss their security plan on a podcast with Tim Ferriss. <laughs> my first piece of advice. <laughs> right, good <laughs> advice. Don't good advice. don't do that. 
Um, but generally speaking, uh, you know, every uh, person you work with is uh, unique and different. So I work with a lot of folks of high net worth and a lot of the general public corporations. And the advice is very specific on what people's threats are. So for some people, the biggest threat, you know, to a hedge fund manager may be that their son or daughter is addicted to meth. And that's bringing all types of other, you know, people into their home that causes them uh, difficulty. Uh, in others, it may Maybe some of their personal proclivities, things that they're looking for online that could be personally embarrassing, you know, mistresses, extramarital affairs, all of that type of stuff. So those are the general things that you look at. And then you work up a prep a threat profile. That's something that I find that most individuals don't do and certainly most corporations don't do. And the fact of the matter is in the same way that hackers are using the internet to gather lots of information about their targets, you yourself can go out there and use tools. You talked about reputation.com and others, but there are lots of tools out there that will allow people to get really good open source information on themselves and the threats against them. And that's one of the key steps that I always mention to my corporate clients is that they need to go ahead and implement an open source intelligence program because if you are working on a secret project, let's say you know it's the latest iPhone or you're working on the latest version of Android, something that you don't want people to know about, if you've got your search engines up and running and you start seeing people talking about it or sales lists are leaking out there or employees' resumes are out there showing that they're about to jump to the competition, you know, there's just a lot of stuff that you can detect. And the other point that I I tell them is, and most people don't realize this, is make sure that you're looking in the digital underground. So most people think, you know, when they search Google, they're searching the internet. And when you're searching Google, in reality, you're only searching about point oh three percent of all the available uh, electronic information stored on the planet. So how do you go about searching the digital underground? Ah, you have to go underground. <laughs> the, the the quickest way to do it, I mean, one of the ways that people do it is by using Tor, the onion router. Right. So that's a specialized piece of software actually produced by the U.S. Navy. And it was meant originally to help uh, democracy and human rights activists overseas uh, bypass their national firewalls, whether in China or Iran, so that they can get around to communicate. And it was very useful for their personal safety. And there's a million great reasons why you would use Tor, again, if you want, uh, in the wake of Snowden, if you wanted to go ahead and have good encryption of the information you're looking for, then uh, Tor is a great, uh, useful tool for that with some noted limitations. But the other side of that is that there's something called Tor Hidden Services. And if you're running this particular piece of software, you can now get access to a whole world that you don't know exists. So this is where hackers and terrorists and hacktivists and spy agencies and law enforcement hang out. So I'm sure you will be familiar with the Silk Road uh, and what went on in sure. that case. It broke very close to you in San Francisco. And the fact of the matter is Dread Pirate Roberts, the alleged person who was running that, had the largest drug website uh, in the world. And whether or not you like drugs or not, and whatever your position may be, a National Institute of Health uh, uh, Drug Abuse uh, Agency study said at some point, 20% of all narcotics purchased in the United States transited the Silk Road. Wow, I had no idea the number was so big. Yeah. 
And the money that uh, Dread Pirate Roberts brought in in those 30 months was $1.2 billion. So $1.2 billion in 30 months of uh, methamphetamine, AK-47s, Uzis, child pornography, fake passports, whatever you're looking for, you could buy it there. And because uh, Silk Road operated kind of like eBay where the house took a cut of everything they sold, uh, Dread Pirate Roberts is alleged to have amassed a personal fortune of $110 million. So, you know, let's say you're a 28-year-old entrepreneur and kids don't do this out there, but if you're a 28-year-old entrepreneur, you know, getting uh, going from zero to $1.2 billion in 30 months. He had a relatively successful exit, except for the life imprisonment he's facing. But other than that, you know, pretty good gig. <laughs> right. The, uh, the rather punishing uh, asterisk. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> On the income statement. Note. Yeah. Comes, comes with free imprisonment for life. Uh, exactly. Free prison companions. Yeah. Oh God. Uh, the, the, um, so you, so you mentioned drugs, uh, I want to chat about that for a second because I've heard you mention, and maybe you can elaborate on um, drug production. So this is something that I'm very fascinated by. I mean, uh, I, I think drugs is a bit of a so the, in the Nancy Reagan say no to drug sense, it's a bit broad. Uh, I think right. it it, uh, it a, a lot gets mixed into this so-called war on drugs that that shouldn't be part of it at all, and a lot of good therapeutic agents get disregarded and blah blah blah. But the point being, when you look at just some of the real cash cows, if you look at the the opiates, right? If you look at the look at heroin, you look at cocaine. Um, you know, marijuana is a very interesting case. We won't get too far into that, but just the uh, the sort of decriminalization of of marijuana is really fascinating. But um, isn't its use mandatory in San Francisco? It's I pretty. It's, it's pretty. If you close. go into Dolores Park, you by law are required to yes be using marijuana. Yeah, if you skip, if you if you you know stub your toe and and therefore have chronic pain, then you can. You're get permanently marijuana. disabled. Yes, and then now you need marijuana. Yeah. Uh, but I've heard, and I can't, I haven't verified this, but there are. Uh, poppy fields, uh, even within some national parks in the U.S. that are policed by Mexican uh, narcos. And you have to be careful even as a hiker in some cases if you go too far off the beaten path. Uh, is that going to change in so much as will drugs uh, – the example that you used was uh, involving yeast to synthetically produce cocaine or not synthetically perhaps but in a i guess it would be synthetically produce cocaine or other drugs like that are these are these fields is that entire production chain and all the shipment is that just going to go away yeah, so you've hit on a really, really interesting point, which is, uh, you know, in the same way that uh, Apple can go ahead and disrupt Microsoft and Google can disrupt, you know, uh, somebody else. The fact of the matter is, is that the old school original gangsters and narco dealers are going to be faced uh, with some challenges to their business model from a new generation of joke dealers. Uh, and it's going to be really fascinating. So to your point, when you think about what is required for the production of of uh, cocaine today or heroin, right? You need these massive fields of cocoa leaves or marijuana plants or poppy uh 
plants, etc. And that is uh, really tough for the dope dealers. A, they're expensive to main. They have a very huge footprint in terms of hectares and hectares of fields that need to be maintained. And they're easy for law enforcement to detect. So now, thanks to th- synthetic biology, one of the amazing things that you can do is because all of those marijuana, poppy, uh, or coca plants are all naturally occurring, you know, um, substances that contain DNA. You can actually go in and sequence a cocaine plant or poppy seed or any of those things and from that deduce the genetic code for cocoa. And you can go further in and say, well, what's the active ingredient here? And you can isolate that and you can snip that part of the plant or the active ingredient and you could insert it into yeast. And then you could grow those yeasts and you could bake bread with it and you could make uh, beer with it. So we're not quite there yet, but all of these things are uh, very close off on the horizon. And it completely breaks our current global security model around narcotics because, again, we have these you know big fields and we look for the big fields and we have uh, dope sniffing dogs when you arrive at the airport or going through customs and immigration. But they're not going to smell you know a loaf of bread that is just as powerful as cocaine. So there are some really interesting opportunities there moving forward. It's going to make for some really interesting beer and bread in the future. Is it conceivable, this is just now I'm going to really go off the deep end into my uh, sort of detective novel mode, but uh, <laughs> is it is it conceivable that the U.S. government could decide that it would be pragmatic to in some way seed people domestically with technology to, in a very uh, decentralized way, produce, meaning synthesize, cocaine, heroin, etc., uh, to disrupt the, uh, the incentives and finances of, say, cartels who are shuttling drugs, uh, from, and I know that the, the Mexican cartels are now as, 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 as far south as, uh, as Colombia, where I've spent some time. Right. And right. Very, very prevalent. But basically, in a way to reduce violence and disrupt that chain, do you think there's any conceivable scenario in which the, the government or some facet of, um, law enforcement would decide that that type of, uh, even the introduction of that type of production would either be done deliberately or, uh, t- or have a blind eye cast to it to, um, for the trade-off, which is disrupting the, the immensely violent and problematic influence of the cartels in Mexico. Yeah, I mean, you're asking for a particularly interesting public policy and political question. Uh, there are plenty of folks who are advocating for this. There's a great talk by a gentleman called Ethan Nadelman, who I just saw speak down at TED Global, uh, who really gives a very powerful and compelling talk for why drugs should be legalized. And, you know, you can Google that and find his talk. Um, there are, you know, we're kind of seeing the beginnings of that now with marijuana. And there are other countries like the Netherlands that have, you know, allowed people to be on heroin for years and put them on methadone. So there have been lots of different experiments around this. I would say I don't know that the public policy and more importantly, the politics around this is there yet. But uh, you can certainly look at the cost of what it is doing to our society, uh, particularly here in the United States. We have the largest incarcerated population in the world. I think there are 
something like 3 million people uh, that are somehow in the criminal justice system at state pen or at the local level uh, and federal penitentiary. So the cost of maintaining that, and most of those folks are there for drugs one way or the other. So there's certainly an economic cause to be put forth. And again, I'd refer you to Ethan Nailman who makes that way better than I can. I don't know that the government uh, anytime soon is going to see this more as a public health issue and focus on demand reduction. Right now, the public policy in the United States has been almost heavily geared towards uh, supply reduction. So, you know, let's go ahead and, you know, drop napalm on cocaine fields in Colombia and that'll solve it. And of course, the, as the, the people in Latin America, the Mexican president and others have mentioned, uh, well, don't blame us. You guys are the ones that want to buy it. So it's really <laughs> complex, right? Um, how this works. I will mention that the narcos are all over the drug trade, uh, from all over the technology uh, space uh, in really amazing ways. So narcos are using robots. They are flying drones. They've got drug subs. Um, there are now uh, quadcopter drones and octocopter drones that can carry like 1,000 kilo uh, loads of cocaine and marijuana across the Mexican-American border. We're starting to see that. There are 2,000 tons carried by remote-controlled uh, narco subs. The Some of the Colombian cartels literally have a R&D budget. So the cocaine uh, cartels in Colombia have like $5 million allocated to R&D for robotics because the day that they can launch autonomous subs up against North America, they've hit pay dirt. So we're seeing that. And the money and the sums are involved. We're we're talking earlier about how clever uh, terrorists may or may not be. You should look at the sophistication among the narcos and the money that they have allows them to bring in tremendous talent. Uh, El Chapo, uh, Joaquin Guzman, uh, who ran the Sinaloa cartel, was recently arrested in Mexico. And at the time of his arrest, he had a room in his you know mansion, a uh, cash room with $200 million in cash. Just sitting in his house. We we call that the Tim Ferriss room, obviously, for obvious reasons. But right. he was actually listed at, at number one on the Forbes wealthiest list ahead of Oprah and French President Sarkozy. Right. So the amount of money, by the way, to put $200 million in perspective, Interpol's annual budget is $90 million. Wow. So, so, you know, so if you were a sports team, you would bet on that sports team against Interpol in a heartbeat. Uh, and it would seem to be the wiser bet. Yes. I mean, in terms of talent recruitment, he should have, he should have uh, a number of incentives to use. I will kill you or yes. you work for me or exactly. I will give you twice as much as anyone else, any other law enforcement agency or at least Interpol can pay you. And, and by the way, that's exactly happening right now. There's, you know, we were kind of joking about what's going on with the narco wars in Mexico, but there have been 50,000 innocent medic Mexican citizens, nationals that have been slayed in the past six years. So just south of our border, 50,000 people, right, you know, more than live in Palo Alto or the suburb, you know, of New York, uh, have been murdered. And so there's a massive war going on between the people. We talked about crowdsourcing before. There's a ton of incredibly brave uh, Mexican citizens who are actually crowdsourcing the location and activities of the narcos. And uh, they're, they're using open source tools like Google Maps to report dope dealers and bring that information forward. The dope dealers have gotten hip to that and have now actually gone ahead and killed off a bunch of these citizen reporters. And so uh, to protect themselves now, those guys are using encryption and the narcos have gone out there and actually kidnapped hackers. 
They've kidnapped like top hackers off the street and brought them back to their headquarters and say, hey, you decrypt this or I'm going to kill you. Uh, and the payback, once somebody is identified as being a potential snitch uh, for the narcos, have been draconian. Uh, you know, it's kind of gross and you can edit this out if you need be. But to make their point, some of the narcos have gone ahead and kidnapped some of these folks who are using tools like Google Maps to to crowdsource what was going on with the drug dealers and their activities kidnapped them uh, and killed them and decapitated them and taken their heads uh, and brought them to the central square of the town, like right in front of the church when everybody shows up on Sunday morning. And they took two uh, computer keyboards, put them in the town square in front of the church that everybody shows up at with a head, the human head of the snitch right there. And with a note in big letters that said, this is what happens to rats. Uh, horrifying, of course. And the, the number that I have so much trouble grasping is 50,000. It's so many people. Uh, are, what, how does that break down? If you're looking at the pie chart of reasons for these deaths, um, how many of them are snitches or what percentage versus, uh, stray bullets and just collateral damage versus, shock and awe campaigns to, to instill fear and terror into entire cities, into compliance. Because I, I've, I've read these stories of say 20 or 50 students being killed and decapitated. Right. We had that right now in the right. past couple of weeks. We've had all these, you know, innocent high school students who were just murdered allegedly by the mayor and the police in the town. So, you know, I can make up a story, but I don't know the exact breakdown of what it is. My gut tells me based upon what I've read and researched that brought, you know, there's some percentage of this that is drug dealer on drug dealer violence. So one cartel fighting with another. The others are people that won't go along with the narcos and what they are up uh, against and what they want to do. So they get taken out. Law enforcement officers get taken out. And then there's just a tremendous number of casualties when, you know, uh, the trucks come through the little town and everybody's shooting AKs and M16s. And then, you know, five-year-olds get gunned down uh, as kind of collateral damage. Man, good to count count our blessings when you don't have to contend with that on a on a regular basis or an any time basis. It's really horrifying. Uh, to to just maybe project forward a bit, and I'm not sure if it's projecting forward that far. In fact, but artificial intelligence. Uh, there are a lot of different differing opinions on this, but what are the threats, if any, of artificial intelligence? And where are things now versus where you think they might be? That is a great question. You know, it's actually very much in the news today. Elon Musk, and I quote him in my book, um, talks about the threat from AI being greater than nukes. And uh, Stephen Hawking actually put an op-ed in The Independent in London about a month or two ago where he was very cautious about a widespread adoption of AI. Just for folks who aren't particularly familiar with AI, um, you know, there are generally two types. There's the narrow AI. That's the artificial intelligence that goes ahead and puts a recommendation for you out there on Netflix or Amazon about what book you might like. If you enjoyed this movie, you might like this movie. So that kind of narrow AI is widespread and ubiquitous. It's, you know, AI that allows you to talk to American Airlines while you're on hold. And we're seeing that every place. And then there's the broader, more widespread AI, which is kind of uh, artificial general intelligence. That's kind of the Skynet AI that people fear will run the planet. And there are some 
concerns about both. Broadly speaking, you know, we all saw or most of us may have seen the uh, television episode for uh, Jeopardy when IBM's Watson was playing. Did you happen to catch that? I didn't personally see it. So it's, you know, IBM built this computer called Watson and it's doing a narrow AI and it played against uh, the top, top Jeopardy champs and just kicked their butts, right? So this big computer with a funny voice called Watson was able to beat the best champions in the world uh, at Jeopardy. And before that, you know, we had our greatest chess champions being beaten by computer. But the question that people don't realize or don't often ask themselves is what would happen if Watson turned to a life of crime? Right? How much mm-hmm. healthcare fraud could Watson commit? How much identity theft could Watson commit? The fact of the matter is, is that day in and day out, we are turning over more and more of our lives to algorithms. People worry about individual bits of data being stolen, but that's like kind of a low-level threat. Of course, that's happening. The bigger threat is having our algorithm hacks. Algorithms are very complex uh, mathematical formulae that go out there and carry out everything from the anti-brake system in your car to the GPS navigation used by aircraft around the world to uh, all the trading on the stock floors. And those are all algorithms. And we've seen a couple of really crazy, wacky things going on in the world of algorithms. So, which, you know, which look like market manipulation. The challenge is, is that Moore's law applies to criminals as well. And the big paradigm shift in crime has been as a result of algorithmic programming. So in the book, I talk about the fact that the old paradigm of crime is you get a bad guy, he goes out and buys a knife or gun, hides in a dark alley and says, stick him up, right? That was a good that was a good business. You could be your own boss, set your own hours, startup costs were low. But Tim, you know this better than anybody else. What was his problem? Didn't scale. How do you scale your business, right? That was tough for a criminal. Two arms, two guns. Exa- exactly. Yeah. And and everybody you rob might shoot back and kill you. Right. Um, so uh, technology came along that actually improved upon that business model. And the technology was the locomotive. Now, rather than robbing one person at a time, we could rob uh, 200 people at a time. Now, when they created trains, nobody thought about that. But of course, that was a consequence. Fast forward today to the days of the internet. And we've had hacks like at Target and the Sony PlayStation hack before that, where 100 million people were simultaneously uh, victims of a crime. In the Target hack, one third of all Americans were affected by that. So if you talk about exponentials, we've gone from criminals robbing one person to one single lone individual being able to rob 100 million people. That is a complete paradigm shift in crime. And because it's exponential, it's only going to grow. And so my big fear and concern that I write about in Future Crimes, the book, is the fact that our systems of justice and law and order and public safety are all deeply, deeply linear. And yet the threat is entirely exponential. And we're seeing criminals use algorithms, right? You know why you can rob a 100 million people? Because computer crime has been reduced to an algorithm. The old days, I talked about the movie War Games earlier, the old day was you'd have the, you know, high school kid with the bag of Doritos and, you know, Monster or Red Bull sitting at his computer hacking away at all hours. You don't need to do that anymore. You can write scripts that carry out crime. You've heard of software as a service. Guess what? There's crime as a service. You can actually go out there and buy 
programs like Black Shades and others that will go out there and commit crime for you. And so when a computer program can do the identity theft, can do the denial of service attacks, can do that for you, it can run in the background 24-7, you know, uh, 365 days a year to carry out that crime. That's why it scales and that's why the profits are so high. And, you know, a lot of the principles in the four-hour work week have been implemented uh, by organized crime. I'm not saying they read your book, but I'm saying <laughs> that the logic uh, that you developed in a lot of this, uh, ha, you know, people are seeing that. And so now we have fully automated crime and it's algorithms that are carrying it out and AI. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, these these principles, um, whenever you look at principles for effectiveness and efficiency or scaling or building an organization, they they, they can, they can of course, cut both ways. I mean, they can be used as a, as a surgical tool to do good things. They can use, be used to decapitate people, you know, metaphorically or physically, uh, even, but, um, and that's an important point I'd love to make is I'm not saying, by the way, technology is bad. You know, I like you live in Silicon Valley. I'm a huge proponent of technology. It has the opportunity to bring tremendous abundance and positive good to the world. But as you mentioned, whether it be a, a knife can be used by a surgeon to heal or by a criminal to kill. And it's just about how we use it. No, absolutely. And, um, I'd love to to chat. Uh, I know we're probably going to be wrapping up pretty soon, but I wanted to ask you just about what can be done. So let's assume that the people listening are are for the most part not going to uh, they're not going to feel compelled to dig a spider hole in their backyard because they're afraid the black helicopter is going to come for them, and you know they're going to fight off the U.S. government with their stash of handguns. <laughs> let's just right. assume that that's not. Uh, who we're talking to primarily, but for people who are like, all right, I'm busy. Uh, I've got a little bit of money. I'm well-educated. I'm very worried about doing stupid things that compromise me. Uh, you know, what are, what are a handful of simple steps that they should take, uh, or might consider taking to decrease the odds of bad things happening? Sure. Uh, well, I can throw out some tips for individuals and then some for startups and companies. So, uh, on the individual front, you know, common sense actually is not so common. And the number of people that will click on links and open attachments is really high as a really strong piece of advice. Just don't do that. It's really bad cyber hygiene. And I talk about the concept of cyber hygiene and the idea of keeping yourself clean. And if you think about, you know, sexually transmitted diseases, right? If you're not clean, you transmit it to other people. The same is true with our computer. So don't do that. Uh, another thing that you can do is make sure that your computer or your or mobile phone is constantly up to date. Have you ever been sitting in front of your computer when you get a little notification like, hey, there's a new update to Windows or there's a new update to iOS or something like that? Have you come across those? Sure. Yeah. I get notifications all the time. Right. So what people don't, what that isn't saying, it sounds really nice when they say, oh, there's an update. What it really means is our our software has been riddled with security holes for the past six months, you know, since the previous update, and we're now finally fixing them. So, you know, there's the flip side of that. I would say always make sure that your software is up to date across all of your devices and and up, keep that updated. Another thing you can do, uh, I am not a fan of single sign-on and using the same password 
password to log on to, you know, all your services. The challenge with that is if your account at Target gets hacked and you use your same Target email and login uh, across multiple sites, now the bad guys, and they do routinely do this. Once they get 100 million accounts from Target, they're taking your Target, you know, name and password, and they're trying it at Bank of America and Citibank, and they're trying it at Facebook and Google. So if you have, you should definitely have a different name and password for all of your sites. Now, I know people will say to me, oh, great, Mark, how am I going to remember, you know, 300 passwords? And this one wants a capital letter, and the other one wants the name of, you know, my favorite uh, child actress, and it's all too complex. There are a number of pieces of software out there called uh, password managers or password wallets that I recommend. You have to use some caution because guess what? Organized crime have created their own versions of those. So they call, they'll upload something. It's like super number one best password program and get it into <laughs> you know the Android Play Store and tens of thousands of people download it. And of course, your passwords are just being fed to organized crime in the background. So I recommend uh, one password. Uh, there's another one called LastPass, which is quite good. And then there's KeePass, K-E-E-P-A-S-S, which is an open source version. So definitely do not use the same password. If you're in a public space, always make sure that you use a VPN, a virtual private network. This way, any of the information that is transiting from your computer to the internet is encrypted from that point to point. Uh, if you're not and you're sitting at a local Starbucks, I can go ahead and just because we're on the same network, see everything you're doing on your computer. There was a hack a few years ago called Fire Sheep where I could steal your Facebook session cookie and log in as you and post things to your Facebook account just because we were on the same network. And you didn't need to be sophisticated. Actually, it was just a browse-in for a Firefox browser that allowed me to hack. So the tools of hacking are becoming particularly um, you know, easy to use. Um, so if you do those things, if you maintain your site, uh, if, if you go ahead and constantly update them and use password managers, you can actually avoid 85% of the threats out there. So you can make a massive, massive difference. The last one that I tell people that most folks don't consider is do not use the admin account from your own computer as your primary account. So if you have, you know, on your computer uh, a, a Tim Ferriss account, that account should not have administrative privileges. You should have a primary account, which is administrative privileges. And the one that you use day in and day out should be a user account with degraded non-administrative privileges. Why would you do that? Because if you click on the uh, email from the Nigerian prince by accident and get your computer infected, if you're already logged in under an admin account, then that code needs no further permissions to go ahead and infect you and to get onto your machine. But if you're on a user account and you get that infection, in order to change the system files, it will ask you to enter in your password, which should be a good clue that you've been hacked. Got it. Okay. So you're talking about for the, the computer access, the local computer access. Correct. Yeah. Got if you're it. logged onto uh, your personal, you know, your MacBook Air or a Windows machine or a Samsung machine, whatever it is, your laptop, your home computer, uh, it's really wise to never run it as an administrator. Got it. Okay. No, that makes sense. And just to add to, uh, your, your password recommendation, which I think is a smart one, you know, whether it's one password, last pass or otherwise is, uh, enabling two step authentication. Uh, excellent is really a good idea, uh, for, you know, for Gmail, for Facebook, for any account that you can to, uh, enable two-step authentication for those people listening who don't know what that is. It's usually within settings somewhere. And all that means is 
if you try, if you or someone else tries to log into, say, your Gmail account from an unrecognized computer, it's going to shoot you a typically a, uh, very often a text to your cell phone with a pass key that you need to enter in order to then enter your password. Uh, so it's just another barrier. So to yeah, speak. that's a great piece of advice. Uh, what about, so with the startups, are there any other pieces of advice that you would have, uh, low hanging fruit for those folks? Well, so for the folks that are working in the startup world, and I advise a lot of different startups, as I know that you do, you know, they're running around crazy trying to get their beta out there. They want to get to ship their code, whatever their product is. And so probably the very last thing on their list is security. They don't think about it. And so for a company, you need to think about these issues, right? Because all you have is your intellectual property. And there are actually companies out there that specialize, you know, the minute Facebook is launched, they create the German version of Facebook and they create the Chinese version of eBay. And so ripping off your IP is very much what they do. So uh, both for startups and particularly for larger corporations, one thing I often suggest is that you need to be keenly aware of what's going on with your competition and with your own company. So that goes back to implementing an open source intelligence program. Uh, You also need to have somebody who's in charge of your security and kind of thinks, you know, with the more of a conspiratorial mindset that you and I seem to have uh, in talking (laughs) about this stuff and figuring out what can go wrong because most people are good people they don't think like bad guys right i put handcuffs on bad guys for 20 years all over the world i know how they think so if you're not trained in that it's not at all obvious um it's also important to realize that not everything needs to go into a computer both coca-cola and kentucky fried chicken kfc the secret recipes for their food is not in any electronic uh system can be retrieved it's air gapped written down on a piece of paper so if it's really important uh think about that we talked about some of the travel tips earlier the last thing that i would mention is to red team and test your assumptions red team is a term from the military you kind of have the blue team and the red team the blue team is the united states the red team is always the bad guys and the military trains this way where they use you know sets of bad guys to try to break their stuff i can guarantee you that if you're doing anything interesting on the internet or in your personal life there's somebody who's trying to get access to it it may not be an individual hacker sitting at a keyboard targeting you because as I mentioned earlier, a lot of these attacks can be scripted. Uh, the thing I hear all the time is, oh, I've got nothing to hide. I've got nothing to lose. Uh, then you don't lead a very interesting life if that's the case. Um, <laughs> I, I would think we all have something at risk here. And so you should be testing those assumptions. And because if you're not trying to hack yourself, the bad guys are. So better that you uncover uh, those threats first. No, definitely. And just to your point, I mean, there are some real hotbeds. I think I want to say Estonia for some reason, but it might be Bratislava, somewhere out in that neck of the woods. I mean, there are, there are entire cottage industries that have popped up. In Romania. Romania, that that's sure. what it yeah. was. That's what it yep. was. Romania. Yeah, it, it's actually called like, you know, the cybercrime headquarters of the world where it's very funny. They have something like 500 people in this village, but that one Western Union office in Romania does more than most of Western Europe because of all the illegal cybercrime payments coming in there. So, uh, and in, you know, Nigeria, they have what are called the Yahoo Boys. These are the ones that send out all of those emails, you know, trying to trick you. So, yeah, there's definitely a very vibrant cybercrime economy out there. A study by McAfee and CSIS, a think tank in D.C., estimated the global cyber economy at $400 billion a year. It's tremendous. That is so wild. Yeah, and growing, uh, no uh, no doubt about it. Uh, well, I would uh, 
I think this is a good round two, uh, round one rather for us. I'm already looking for round two. So I think, I think this is a good uh, introduction for folks, gives them plenty to think about. Uh, any, uh, okay, here's one for you. Do you have any habits that, um, that may, might be non-obvious to people or, or, or habits that you think improve your security or give you peace of mind that uh, other people find odd? One that I get commented on all the time is if you look at any of my devices, whether it be my cell phone, my laptop, or my computers at home, they all have yellow stickies over the camera. The fact of the matter is, is that not only can people hack your camera, but they can hack it in a way such that the little green or red light isn't on. And we had, there's malware out there, so that does this really easily. I mentioned Black Shades earlier. That will do that. Uh, there was a girl called Cassidy Wolf who was Miss Teen America, and she went ahead and had her camera taken over. Ultimately, we found out by one of her classmates. She clicked on an infected email. And as Miss Teen America, 17-year-old girl, was coming out of her own bathroom, you know, uh, after taking a shower, her laptop was open. This creep was going ahead and surreptitiously filming her and taking the video and then blackmailed her and said, hey, you know, if you don't do specific sex acts for me in front of the video, I'm going to release all this stuff live. Uh, so I, uh, unlike Teen America, people are not lining up to <laughs> <laughs> naked, but I still go ahead and cover up the video camera and it's super cheap uh, to do. And it's, you know, it's, it's just something to keep in mind. So funny you mentioned that I have masking tape over my, uh, over my uh, camera on my laptop right now, because I was hanging out with a buddy of mine who in a previous life got in a lot of trouble with the FBI for hacking. <laughs> he is a, <laughs> he is a world-class Hacker. I mean, if you want to talk about a very competent red team, he now gets right. he now gets paid by companies to do that to try to right. beat their systems, which he usually does successfully. Uh, and he said, you know, you might want to put some tape on that. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, like if I wanted to hijack your computer and videotape you, I could do it pretty easily. And I was like, okay, say no more. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and I've actually heard of business travelers um, who have been blackmailed very similarly. Um, usually, female travelers who have. Uh, uh, had people attach cameras to their their hotel uh, peepholes from the opposite Absolutely. side, and so business travelers. Uh, there's some business travelers I know who will similarly cover up that um, cover up that keyhole so that uh, people cannot surveil them. Absolutely. Uh, Talking about cameras, you know, I mentioned earlier that everything is becoming software or hardware and cameras are a perfect example of that. You know, we all go ahead uh, and have cameras around us, not just on our cell phones or on our laptops, but everywhere we go, right? There are now cameras at the dry cleaners, cameras at the bakery, cameras at the ATMs, and all of those cameras are connected to the internet and they're all hackable. And some crazy number, like 30 to 40% of all camera systems have absolutely no password. And another 30 or 40% have the admin password that's written in the manual that's available on PDF on the internet if you Google the name of the camera system. So that means they're widely available to be hacked. And yet people use things like baby monitors, nanny cams, things like that to protect themselves. And we're finding that uh, they're just easy marks. Uh, within the past week, actually, uh, here in late October, we had an incident where it was reported that 76 
thousand camera systems had been compromised and were being live streamed to the web. So you could log in because all of these cameras had been hacked and easily taken over. And you could see women sitting on the couch. You could see people in their bedroom having sex. You could see mothers breastfeeding their kids, people sitting in dry cleaners, you know, cooking stuff at bakeries. So we think these systems are there to protect us. But in fact, they can be compromised and used in really interesting ways. If you have time, I'll tell you another funny story about that. I have time. Awesome. There was a case called the Crown Casino in Melbourne, Australia. This happened about a year ago. And a man comes in and starts playing poker. And he's doing really, really well. Uh, He ends up playing for two days, almost straight. And he walks away from the Crown Casino in Melbourne, Australia with $33 million playing poker, gets back on a plane and flies back to his home country in Asia. What the hell happened? Because the casino got cleaned out. They had no idea. They ended up looking at it and it turns out that he was part of a hacker team that went ahead and hacked the security cameras in casinos. You know, all casinos have a ton of cameras and the hackers that were working with this guy had given him an earpiece. And so with the by having commandeered the casino's own security system, they could see perfectly clearly what the dealer's cards were and the <laughs> players of all the different uh, players at the table. And they were basically via electronic message into his ear telling him, you know, stay pat, hold, double down, all of that stuff. And just 48 hours, you know, 33 million bucks. So the cameras that are meant to protect us, if they're not locked down and encrypted, can definitely be used against us. Wow. Yeah, good good luck extraditing that guy. Yeah, exactly. Oh man. He can now afford a good defense. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Wow. Well, there's so much more to talk about, but uh I I will uh I will certainly look forward to some follow-on conversations. Maybe we'll inject some wine into the into the mix to make things uh, more rambunctious. But <laughs> uh but uh, since I know we're we're practically neighbors, uh, even though yeah. we're doing this Virtually, uh, the, no, I would love to meet you in person someday and hang out again. Likewise. And, uh, the, the, the recommendation I'd make for, to folks is, uh, go to futurecrimes.com. Check, check this out. And, uh, Mark did me a, a very big favor by coming on, uh, the show early for you guys. And, uh, do me the favor. The book is very inexpensive. It's going to be spectacular. Pre-order the book. So just, it's, it'll take two seconds. Grab it on Amazon or wherever. Uh, futurecrimes.com. Check it out. Definitely take a look at his TED talk. Uh, where else should they, uh, should or can they find you? Uh, I'm at Singularity University, so I teach there. We have a bunch of great executive programs. And uh, other than that, on a plane somewhere, traveling the world. <laughs> so Singularity University is fascinating, guys. If, if you really want to train yourself to think about exponential or exponentially growing technologies in a new way to expand your mind, I, I can guarantee that Singularity U will help. And that's what it is on, on the web, singularityu.org. You can take a look at everything there. And... Uh, I will also include links to various resources and books and whatnot that we mentioned in this episode, as well as uh, future crimes in the show notes for those of you listening who do who uh, want to simply find the one-stop shopping for everything we talked about. Go to fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast, all spelled out. And uh, Mark, until next time, thanks so much for taking the time. This was a blast. This was awesome, Tim. Thank you so much. 